We're going to open your Bibles this morning. We're going to step back into 1 Samuel. We're going to be in 1 Samuel chapter 27. I'm continuing to walk through the book of 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel 27 is where we'll be at. Um, I know just to kind of remind us of where we were last time in 1 Samuel 26, we had a second occasion um, where David had opportunity to kill Saul and chose not to do it. Um, chose to trust God's purposes, to trust God's will, to not even allow his servant to go and to easily take care of Saul in that moment of Saul's slumber brought on by the Lord, but to see David saying, no, I will not do this. I will not step into this. I will do God's will, God's way. And to see at the end of chapter 26, what seemingly feels miraculous, but for Saul to say, all right, I'm done. I'm done hunting you. I'm not going to harm you anymore. May God bless you. And this is kind of where, um, this is where Psalm, or Samuel um, 26 ends off. Samuel 27 opens up with one of the lower points in David's life. And we're seeing this pattern in 1 Samuel, aren't we? We're seeing David have these moments of great faith and great trust in the Lord and and waiting on the Lord, a patience for God's will. And then we also see these moments in David's life where he gets ahead of himself. He gets ahead of his own faith. He is in moments of despair or discouragement and makes decisions that are, are not in line with his character, are not in line with what we have seen in the past. And in 1 Samuel 27, we see that out of David. Let's go ahead and jump right in and read it to us. It's a very short chapter um, this week, only 12 verses in 1 Samuel 27, but I want to read them all to us here at the beginning. It says this, it says, Then David said in his heart, Now I shall perish one day by the hand of Saul. Remember the last words of Saul, I'm not going to harm you. David's first words in Samuel 27, I'm going to perish from Saul. There is nothing better for me than I should escape to the land of the Philistines. Then Saul will despair of seeking me any longer within the borders of Israel, and I shall escape out of his hand. So David arose and went over, he and the 600 men who were with him, to Achish the son of Mac, king of Gath. And David lived with Achish at Gath, he and his men, every man with his household, and David with his two wives, Ahinoam of Jezreel, and Abigail of Carmel, Nabal's widow. And when it was told Saul that David had fled to Gath, he no longer sought him. Then David said to Achish, if I have found favor in your eyes, let a place be given me in one of the country towns that I may dwell there. For why should your servant dwell in the royal city with you? So that day Achish gave him Ziklag. Therefore Ziklag has belonged to the kings of Judah to this day. And the number of the days that David lived in the country of the Philistines was a year and four months. Now David and his men went up and made raids against the Geshurites, the Gerzites, and the Amalekites, for these were the inhabitants of the land from of old as far as sure to the land of Egypt. And David would strike the land and would leave neither man nor woman alive, but would take away the sheep, the oxen, the donkeys, the camels, and the garments and come back to Achish. When Achish asks, where have you made a raid today? David would say, against the Negev of Judah, or against the Negev of Jerophmelites, or against the Negev of the Kenites. And David would leave um, neither man nor woman alive to bring news to Gath, thinking, lest they should tell about us and say, so David has done. Such was his custom all the while he lived in the country of the Philistines. And Achish trusted David, thinking he had made himself an utter stench to his people Israel. Therefore, he shall always be my servant. 
what we're seeing in this moment of David, I, it's, it's hard for us to, to read this passage of Scripture because I think on the surface at times, I, even myself, when I read through this passage of Scripture, either I see it as something really dangerous and stupid that David did, or I read it and I say, what's the big deal? Or I just read it and think that sure was 12 verses of Scripture. I'm not sure where that plays into the whole story. Let's move on to something more exciting. And next week is by far more exciting. We're bringing people back from the dead next week. So come back for that and find out what in the world that's all about. Um, so that's next chapter next week. So what we see in this passage of Scripture, what I, what I want us to see in this is, I want us to kind of see behind the scenes and see into David's heart. And this the first few verses of chapter 27 tell us the rest of the chapter. The first few verses says there, Then David said in his heart, In other words, David was talking to himself. David took a moment, a moment of exhaustion, a moment of being weary and tired, and he spoke to himself. And what we see David speaking to himself is not words of hope. It's not words of trust. It's not words of faithfulness. It's not a remembrance of what God has done. It is out of sheer exhaustion that David says what he does, and then he goes on to finish that. What I want us to see this morning, kind of my summary statement of our time this morning, is that when all hope seems lost, when God seems to have forgotten you, when you're weary and you're tired from the fight, look to Jesus. Tell yourself what God has done and what he's provided and his ability to protect. Look to the finished and applied work of Jesus to keep pulling you through. As we read through 1 Samuel 27, it seems like, in the first few verses, it seems like this kind of turns out okay for David. If we're just looking at the surface, if we're just looking at a, from a success standpoint, if we're just looking at a model of on the surface, are his circumstances going well? Is he being provided for? Is everything okay? It seems like everything is going okay. When we look at verses 2 through 4, it looks like things are going okay with David. It says, so David arose, took his 600 men with him, went to Achish, king of Gath. He lived there, all of his households and his wives. And guess what? Saul no longer sought David. It seems like on the surface, everything is kind of working out for David. Now, we remember what we know about Gath. Who was the guy from Gath? Do you remember? Super tall, gigantic dude. What's his name? Goliath. Remember, we've already been to Gath one time before, right? David's already been to Gath. Remember the story what David did when he went back to Gath? Acted like a crazy man, right? So they would leave him alone. He knew he shouldn't be there. He knew that was a dangerous place to be. So he acted like a crazy man so that he could continue to go away from Saul. But now David is going back to Gath, back to the land of the Philistines, to the king asking the king of the Philistines for help and receiving that help and seemingly prospering. He had an army with him. He was winning battles. Saul was no longer seeking after him. It seemed like things were working towards his favor. But below the surface, in chapter 27, David is crumbling. Below the surface, below the outward appearance of things going well, David's faith is wavering in chapter 27. He's having a difficult time continuing on, trusting that God knows what he is doing and that what God had said years ago was actually going to come to fruition. 
We see at the end of this chapter in verse 12, Achish, the king of Gath, the king of the Philistines, trusted David. That should cause us to give pause. The king of the Philistines, the enemy of the nation of Israel, trusted David, saying, He has made himself an utter stench to his people Israel, therefore he shall always be my servant. At the end of this chapter, the king of the Philistines is now saying, the future king of Israel is now my servant. Well, now serve me for the rest of his life. And his very people hate him. This is where we end in chapter 27. Not a great place for the future king of Israel to be. Not a great reputation for the future king of Israel to have. But this is where we find ourselves. And I don't want to be too harsh on David. I think when we read passages of Scripture like this, we read passages of Scripture like when we read the New Testament and the Gospels, and we're so quick to kind of downgrade the disciples and how foolish they were and how dumb they were and how could they do that. And we look at this David, we look at the story of David, and we kind of look at him and say, David, how could you do this? God has provided for you all the way through this. Why are you now trusting in the Philistines or trusting in yourself? Why are you doing this? It's easy to read passages of Scripture like this and say, how could you? We have to remember the background of where David has come from. David has been pursued relentlessly for years at this point. For years, he has been looking over his shoulder, knowing at a moment's notice, Saul and his army were coming to murder him for years. David's reputation has been dragged through the mud time and time again. Saul was communicating to the nation of Israel, this David is not for you. He's against your king. He wants to come against your king. He is trying to destroy your king. His reputation has been dragged through the mud time and time again. And remember David and where he is living over these last several years. In the wilderness, in caves, out in the open. He has not rested for years. There's been no sense of, ah, I am here. I have arrived for years and years and years. And so there's a part of me that I read the story of David and I say, I get it. I understand where you're at, David. I understand the temptation in this moment to just throw your hands up in despair and say, it's been too long. God hasn't answered yet. God hasn't done what he said he was going to do yet. It's too exhausting. It's too hard. It's too much. It's too far away. God, you can't do this. And so I understand the temptation in David to say, I guess I'll just have to do it on my own. I guess I'll just have to make my life comfortable on my own. Because God, you're not coming through in this moment. What we see in this passage of Scripture is a practice that we all do, a practice that is very important for us to do, is natural for us to do, but a practice that we must take control of. And that is speaking to ourselves. Because we all do it. We all talk to ourselves, whether we admit it or not. Some of us do it out loud. Some of us do it in the mirror. Some of us do it. I, often my wife says, what are you saying? And I caught myself like, I wasn't talking to you. I wasn't talking to anybody. I was talking to me. And it was weird that you heard me talking to myself. But we all do that. And we all speak to ourselves all day long. And every moment of the day, we are speaking to ourselves. And the question is, are we speaking life into ourselves? Or are we speaking death into ourselves? Are we speaking hope into our hearts or hopelessness? Are we speaking a rest and a faith in God? Or are we speaking into ourselves a self-reliance that I've got to do this. I've got to build this up. I've got to make this decision. But to think to yourself, well, I don't do that. That's not a practice of mine. You're deceiving yourselves. 
Some of you are talking to yourself in this moment saying that I don't talk to myself, right? We, I caught you red-handed. You do. We see in this passage of Scripture that David is speaking to himself. And this is not abnormal. We read many of the Psalms, and it is David speaking to himself in the Psalms, right? Many of the Psalms go with my soul, right? My soul do this, and my soul believe this, and my soul after this. That's David speaking truth into his own life. But in this moment, David chooses not to believe truth and doesn't speak truth into his life. We see that David says in his heart, I want to share with you three things that that David is sharing to himself about God that are not true. If you look at your outline, if you only look at your outline after this, it's going to sound like I'm saying really awful things about God, but I'm not. Wait for point four. It gets better at the end. But there are three things that David is saying to himself that is causing him to make these kinds of decisions. He says to himself that God will fall short of his promise. He says to himself that God has forgotten to provide. And he says to himself, God is unable to protect. These are the things that David is speaking into his own heart and what leads him to the point of making these kinds of decisions. First, let's look at number one. In moments of discouragement, when we're tired, when we're weary, when we've walked through things for such a long time, we are tempted to say to ourselves that God will fall short of his promise. We look in verse one, it says this, then David said in his heart, now I shall perish one day by the hand of Saul. He begins this passage saying to himself, I'm going to die, and Saul is going to be the one to murder me. That when we read that, we know there's a lot of things that are true that David is not believing or seeing. One thing is, Saul had just said, I'm done. I'm not going to pursue you any longer. I'm not seeking to harm you any longer. I'm not going to come after you. In fact, our chapter 26 ends with Saul asking God to bless David. But, and you and I both know, Saul's not super trustworthy, so I wouldn't rest my entire demeanor on Paul's words. But the reality is, what is true of David? David has been anointed the next king of Israel. What does he have to be to be the next king of Israel? Very simply, alive. He needs to be alive to be the next king of Israel. What does David believe? I'm going to die. I'm not going to make it. I see God's promise. He clearly told me, it is you. You're the next one. When I'm done with Saul, you're taking his place. You are the anointed one of God. You are taking his place. In this moment of discouragement and despair, David believes God cannot fulfill that promise. He has forgotten me. There is no way that's going to happen. I am exhausted from the fight. I am exhausted from running away from Saul. I am exhausted from looking over my shoulder. This is the end of me. And so since this is the end of me, I've got to make the best of what I can in these last days. Because I'm not making it to king. You see, long trials are in danger of tiring our faith and our patience. The longer the suffering, the longer the trial, the longer the difficulty, whatever it is, the greater danger that comes of kind of throwing your hands up in the air and saying, I I can't, I can't. We've all been there. We've all had these moments of, I've waited too long. I can't, I can't do it anymore, Lord. 
I know you said this was going to happen. I know your word says this about me or about what's going to happen next in my life, but it hasn't happened yet, and it's been a very long time. I'm still waiting on you to change. I'm still waiting on you to do this thing. I'm still waiting on my circumstances to be different than they are, and they aren't. You've forgotten me, God. You don't care about me, God. And if we're all honest about it, we've all said those exact words. In the darkest moments of our days, in the dark, in our bedrooms at night, through tears, in the shower, whatever it is, we look at the Lord and we've said, you've forgotten me. You promised something that you're not following through on. And we speak that to ourselves. And the, and the evil one wants to grab that and he wants to echo it. And he wants to speak into your minds and say, you're right. Yeah, how long has it been? It's been days, months, years, decades, your entire life that God has brought you through this and you're still not through it. He has abandoned you. And in those moments when we speak into ourselves, we are we're tempted to not trust the Lord. We're tempted to go in and of ourselves. We are tempted to exchange God's promises for my own promises. We're tempted in that moment to say, well, God, you said you were going to do this. You're not doing this. And so I'm going to insert my own promise here. I'm going to insert my own belief about you here, my own um, description of who you are, my own reason for this. I'm going to go settle for less than what you have for me. I'm tired of waiting, so I'm taking it for myself. And the further we get away from God's promises, let's be honest, the harder it is to remember those promises. The further we look in our past of what God has said he was going to do, the harder it is for us in the moment to remember. And when we're tempted with despair, we tend to compound the problem, don't we? The temptation is in our moment of discouragement and despair is to take a hard situation and make it harder. And to do a thing and to make a decision that further complicates an already complicated situation. David did that. In his moment of despair, he took control on himself and said, I've got to fix this myself. We see in verses 5 and 6, it says, Then David said to Akish, If I have found favor in your eyes, why in the world would David care about finding favor in a Philistine king's eyes? Because he thinks in that moment, maybe this king can help me. Maybe this Philistine can fulfill the promise that God was unable to fulfill. He says, let a place be given me in one of the country towns that I may dwell there. For why should your servant dwell in the royal city with you? David, future king of Israel, looking at the Philistine king and saying, I am your servant. Do with me as you please. So that Akish gave him Ziklag. Therefore, Ziklag has belonged to the kings of Judah to this day. The thing about Ziklag, it already belonged to Judah. And they had lost it. And now it was given back to David. He was already in a thing, already in a promise that they didn't fulfill because they didn't trust the Lord in the moment from years ago in Joshua. When they didn't kick everybody out of the land. It was taken back by the Philistines. You see, David seeks to fulfill God's promise his way. He's like, I'm not going to have a home. I'm not going to have a place. I'm not going to have a place to rest. I'm not going to have the things that I need. God clearly said he was going to make me king. It's not happening. I've got to take this into my own hands. 
I've got to do this thing on my own. I've got to fulfill this promise on my own. And I will look wherever I can to whoever is out there to help me to fulfill the promise that I think I am owed. And who does he look to? Not the people of Israel, not to those who trust in the one true and living God, not to those who can point them back to the promise that, they, that, God, that God had made to them. He looks to the Philistines. He says, since God has abandoned me, maybe you can help me. And the Philistines are more than happy to oblige. <laughs> of course we will. Come. We'd love to have control over the next king of Israel. Please come. Enjoy our lands and our fruit and whatever it is that we have. Of course. But in this moment of despair, he's compounding his problem. And we do the same thing, don't we? When I'm discouraged, when I feel like God's promise is a long way, I will grab onto anything that will help me feel some sense of control. Wherever it happens to be, whatever it happens to be, I will grab onto that. There's danger in that when we speak to ourselves in that way. Not only does David speak to himself that God has forgotten his promise, but number two, David speaks to himself that God has forgotten to provide. He is not giving me what I need. We see in verse 1, it continues on, Then David said in his heart, Now I will perish one day by the hand of Saul. And he goes on to say, There is nothing better for me. There's nothing better for me. David, who writes psalm after psalm after psalm about finding our satisfaction in God alone as the one who provides for us time and time again in this moment of weakness, says there's nothing better for me. God's promise is not worth waiting on. The thing that is ahead of me is not worth the hardship I have been through to get it. And so since there's nothing better for me, I need to take this on myself. What do I do? What do I need to take, um, do to make things work for me? This is David's decision. This is his question. David says to himself, I've got to provide for myself. What do I need to do in my life to make this situation work for me? I don't like it. I don't like where I'm at. I don't really believe God has brought me here. I feel like God has abandoned me. But while I'm here, how can I make this the best it can possibly be? The danger of this is David looks to the Philistines to answer that question. He looks to those who are not trusting in God, those who are rebelling against God, those who have created idols against God and says there's got to be something good there for me. What do I need to do to make this work for me? And again, when we're tempted with despair, we tend to compound the problem. We seek not to rest and to wait for God to provide his exact thing that we need at the exact right moment. We grab onto things and say, this is mine, whatever it takes. We look at verses 8 through 10. Does David even grab this place of Ziklag and say from Akish, we're going to go there, we're just going to wait for God to apply or to, to provide for us in this place. We're not in the very best place. There's probably better places for us to rest, but we are here. But while we're here, let's wait for the Lord. Does David do that? No, he does not. He goes and says, I'm going to take from other people. He goes, now David and his men, in verses 8 through 10, went up and made raids against the Geshurites, the, the Gerzites, and the Amalekites. For these were the inhabitants of the land from of old as far as sure to, land, to the land of Egypt. And David would strike the land and would leave neither man nor woman alive, but would take away the sheep, the oxen, the donkeys, the camels, and the garments, and come back to Achish. Now you read that and you think to yourself, that feels very Old Testament-y to me. <laughs> that feels normal. That's kind of where we've been. 
that feels normal when God clearly says, go do this thing. Did God tell David to go to these places and to kill these people and to take their things? Absolutely not. Under no circumstances was this an obedience of the Lord. This was David saying, I want mine. And I'm going to take mine. And I'm going to take it in a way that I know how to take it. I'm really good at war. So I'm going to enact war on these people and take what is mine. Again, we think to ourselves, we make the connection to ourselves. Not many of us, hopefully not, are plotting war in our bedrooms at night against our neighbors and against the town across the river. And if I go and take their women and children and oxen, I will have everything provided for me. But all of us at times are tempted when we feel like God has not provided for us to take the situation into our own hands, don't we? To say, I know this thing isn't right. I wouldn't normally do this thing, but I need this now. I want this now. This will make me more comfortable right now. This will ease my pain right now. This will help me to wait a little bit longer right now. I'm not going to list those things because we know in our hearts what those things are, that that, that we have all been tempted to say, I'm going to grab onto this thing, and this is going to provide the help and the healing and the hope that I need, and it never does. It just leaves us feeling hungrier, doesn't it? Thirstier, emptier, longing for more. It never fills. It's the broken cistern that we keep trying to fill that just keeps leaking out time and time again. David in this moment says to himself, God has forgotten to provide for me, and so I must provide for myself. Thirdly, what does David say to himself? David looks into his heart and he says to himself, God is unable to protect me. He's unable to protect me. And so it's kind of steamrolling, it's snowballing down. First it's, I don't believe God can do this thing. Then it's, I have to provide for myself. And then David says, I must protect the thing that I am providing for myself, that I don't trust that God will protect the thing that I have grabbed on to to provide for myself. And he was right. God is not obligated to protect the things that you have grabbed onto that are lesser than him to provide for yourself. Oftentimes he exposes those things as worthless as they are. But David says, I need to protect these things because God is not protecting me. We see in verse 1 again, that David said in his heart, now I shall perish one day by the hand of Saul. There is nothing better for me that I should escape to the land of the Philistines. Then Saul will despair of seeking me any longer within the borders of Israel and shall escape out of his hand. In this moment of despair and discouragement, David looks to the Lord and says, no, you've not provided for me. You've not protected me. Saul is breathing down my neck. And if I don't take this into my own hands, he is going to murder me. And God, you can't do anything about it. You can't protect me. You can't keep me. I must do this on my own. So he escapes to the land of the Philistines. And I must protect what I have built for myself at all costs. And this is what David did. And this is what drives him to the decisions that he made to protect at all costs what he had given to himself. We just read in the previous verses that David was given this land and then he enacted all kinds of war and battles and took all of these things and killed all of these people. And you think that's awful. Until you find out the motivation David had for killing the people, it gets worse. The reason David killed the people is so that no one would tell the king of the Philistines what he was doing. He killed them to cover up his sin. 
He killed them to cover up his sin so that he could stay there, protected from Saul, protected from the Philistines, gathering these things up, building his own little kingdom, and murdering people so there was no witnesses to what was going on. You see this awful thing, verses 10 through 11. When Achish asked, where have you made a raid today? David would say, against the Negev of Judah, or against the Negev of the Jerobbelites, or against the Negev of the Kenites. And David would leave neither man nor woman alive to bring news to Gath, thinking, lest they should tell about us and say, so David has done. Such was his custom all the while he lived in the country of the Philistines. David told just enough truth to get away with it. Right? Where was he doing all of this? In the south. Where was he doing it against? The enemies of Israel. What did he communicate to the king of Akesh? I'm in the south of Judah. What also is in the south of Judah? Israelites. So he's just saying, listen, Akesh, you you make your own connections. I'm not going to tell you what I was doing. I was down in the other neighborhood. Things happened. You fill in the blanks. Knowing full well that Akish, the blanks that Akish would fill in where David's going now against his own people. And he was not. And David was okay with that. David rested in that. In the story, we see this about David. It, it seems hopeless. And this seems impossible. To be honest with you, when I read chapters like chapter 27, it seems so out of character for David. Right? When we hear the, the stories of David, when we hear the, the young boy who killed the lions and the, the young boy who came and killed Goliath, the young boy who was set aside as anointed king of Israel, the young boy, who, the, the man who had opportunity to, to take the throne by himself and out of integrity said, no, I will not do it. I will trust the Lord. This man who wrote psalm after psalm after psalm demonstrating his trust in the Lord and, and his patience with the Lord in this moment, it just seems out of character for him. But I want us to see in this passage of Scripture that I'm really thankful this is here. This is a snapshot of David's life. It's a long snapshot. It's a year and four months, but it is a snapshot. I'm forever grateful for stories like this included in the Bible. That this isn't the whole story of David. This isn't all of what he did and what he thought and what he went after. Why is it so important to me? It's because I need to know there's hope for me. Because at any given moment, you could take a snapshot of my life, and it might be word for word, 1 Samuel 27. You could take a picture of a year of my life, a month of my life, a day of my life, five minutes of my life, and to see me talking to myself and saying, God, you have not fulfilled, you have not provided, you have not protected. I need to do this on my own. There's snapshots of my life throughout my life that look exactly like 1 Samuel 27. There's times when I'm doubting, when I'm discouraged, when I'm ready to give up, when I'm not trusting. But what I'm very thankful is that this chapter does not define David's life. But it is still part of David's life. That's what I love about the scriptures. That we see the good and the bad. The hard and the easy. The comfortable and the restlessness. We see all of it. This is part of David's life and it is still a redeemable part of David's life. For those of us who have seen the cross and we celebrate the resurrection last week and we celebrate it every moment, when we read passage of Scripture like 1 Samuel 27, we can read it with hope and to say, this is a bad decision. This is a bad place that David is in. But there is hope here. There's redemption possible here. There is grace that is sufficient here. And I want to share that with you this morning. The struggles you're facing, the lingering doubts that are battling your brain, the discouragement you're fighting, you on your worst day is not the whole story. You on your worst day 
is not beyond redeeming. You are not beyond God's grace. Your story is not finished yet. David's story is not finished yet. Your story is not finished yet. When I read passages of Scripture like this, and I think in my own heart and what I need, I need something more than an example. I need something more than looking at David's life and saying, I need to do what David did. I need something more than looking at Jesus' life and saying, I need to act like Jesus and think like Jesus and believe like Jesus and things will be okay. I need something more than that. I need someone, honestly, I need someone that I can place my faith in to do it for me. I can't. I just can't. I can't sustain it. I can't hold on to it. I can't believe long enough. I can't trust. I can't. I, I'm just, it's so easy for me to waver. It's so easy for me to want to throw my hands up. I'll just be completely honest. I need somebody to do it for me. And this is what I love about Jesus. Jesus doesn't say, look at my life, now do it. Here are the things I said, say those same things. Jesus says, look at my life, it is now yours. Believe in me, I will come into you, and I will live through you. I will do it for you. I will hold on. I will have trust. I will believe. I will keep moving forward. I will do this for you. If you would just simply let go and let me do this. It is what he longs to do. And what I love about Jesus, we don't have to convince him to do it. We don't have to come up with some scheme and say, Jesus, listen, I know I've been bad. I've been good. If you could do this just once, do me a solid just this one time. I won't. All we have to do is say, Jesus, I'm a disaster. Please help. And he joyfully steps in to help us. Because Jesus, remember David, David was pursued relentlessly. David's reputation was dragged through the mud. David lived in wilderness and, and woods and caves. What do we know about Jesus? Jesus was pursued relentlessly to the very end of his life. Jesus' reputation was dragged through the mud time and time again. Jesus lived in the wilderness and in woods and in caves with no place to rest his head. Yet Jesus trusted to the very end, even to his death. The promise to Jesus from the Father is you will bring a people back for me. The end of what we looked at last week was Jesus was going to his death and saying, all right, I know this is part of it. It seems an odd part of it that I would have to die to do all of these things. Jesus even says, if there's any other way, I'm open to it. What David would have said in that moment is, I'm going away from Jerusalem. I can't. I can't. It's too much. What Jesus does is he sets his face towards Jerusalem. And he says, I'm going. And I'm trusting the Father in this. In moments of despair, we look to ourselves and say all these lies. But in the end, number four, finally, in moments of hope, we say to ourselves, God has done all things through Jesus. He has given me promises through Jesus that are yes and amen. He has provided everything I need through Jesus from yesterday to the very end. He will protect me. Yesterday he protected me. Today he will protect me. Tomorrow he will protect me. Even if in protecting me, my life is lost. He will protect me. What we learned about last week in Jesus on the cross is those three simple words on the cross that I can trust and have hope. From John chapter 19 and verse 30, it is finished. I've done it. I've been faithful. I've been obedient. 
I've done everything you've asked me to do. I have trusted you to the very end. And what we celebrated last Sunday was the father saying, congratulations, we come back from the dead. What you have done is sufficient for everyone. That's how I can have hope. And those are the things that I need to speak to myself. In Romans chapter 8, verses 31 to 39, the apostle Paul says this, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? What do you think David need to speak to his heart in this moment? If God is for me, who cares if Saul is against me? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? That is an immensely powerful verse that I think we skip over so often. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 8, he gives us Jesus and everything. If he's going to give us Jesus freely, will he not also give us everything else we need that is less than Jesus? Of course he will. Why would he not? Paul goes on in Romans chapter 8 and says that nothing will separate us from the love of God. Nothing. And he lists everything. I can just see Paul writing this. And then they'll probably say heights, so not heights. And they'll probably say depths, so not depths. They'll probably say nakedness, so I got to list that too. And all of these things that he lists to drill it into our heads. There is nothing that will separate you from the love of God. Not even the man you are going to replace set out to murder you. Nothing will separate you from the love of God. In closing this morning, I think it's really important for us to see this habit of David that can do great things for us or great discouragement to us. And that's speaking to our hearts. We're often tempted to speak discouragement and despair into our hearts, aren't we? Some of you may have driven here this morning talking to yourself about how God has abandoned you. Some of you are watching from home because you just couldn't get out of your house this morning. It was just too much. Some of you are on the edge this morning of just saying, I just, I can't. I've trusted for this long, and it's not worked out for me yet. My challenge to us, my encouragement to us this morning is to speak words of life over you, and not so that ultimately it's the words of life that change us and sustain us, but the word of life that changes us and sustains us. It is not that I speak things over myself that, Andy, you've got this. You're good looking, you're smart, you're all those things, and you're going to be able to do this. This is not that at all. This is Jesus has done this. Jesus has accomplished this. Jesus said this. Jesus said this. Jesus reminded me of this. It is speaking to our hearts over and over again. We need to be reminded of what God has done for us so that we can take that next step. What God has done for us in the past, he will continue to do for us in the future. As the music team comes for our last song, I want us to do together a responsive reading together. I think it's important for us to put into practice immediately what it is that I'm encouraging us with, to speak to our soul this morning. This is an important practice, an important discipline for those of us who are followers of Jesus, to speak to our souls, to speak words of life and truth and promise to our souls. What we're going to do is up on the screen behind me. Someone could grab the lights real quick so we, can grab, um, so we can see what's on the screen. On the screen behind me, we're going to be doing a responsive reading from Psalm 103. 
The, the part that says leader, that's me. The part that says congregation, that's y'all. So I'll do my part, you do your part. And as we're reading through this, again, the, the danger of responsive readings is... So boring and lifeless, and we're just reading a menu at McDonald's. These are words of life given to us, directed by the Holy Spirit, from God to encourage and to build us up. These are words of life that in those moments of God, you have forgotten me. I want us to go to Psalm 103 and look in the mirror and say, soul, this is what is true. If you would stand with me for this responsive reading, that would be great. Again, I will read the parts that say, leader, and you will follow through with congregation. This is a responsive reading of Psalm 103. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us as according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field. For the wind passes over it, and it is gone, and its place knows it no more. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him. And his righteousness to children's children, to those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens, and his kingdom rules over all. Bless the Lord, O you his angels, you mighty ones who do his word, obeying the voice of the Lord. Bless the Lord, all his hosts, his ministers who do his will. Bless the Lord, all his works, in all his places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Let's sing together.